yeah, it's not always going to be easy. I mean, it's rarely going to be easy that we can just take a child home. But if we continue at it, if we continue the, the perseverance through it, that there's a home for every one of these kids. There's so many great stories of, of some of the kids that we've worked with in, in the program, some of the kids that our staff have worked with, but recently one, one story of actually two kids, they were twin brothers, and they came onto our campus um, late in 2016. Um, they actually brought themselves to the gate, which is a little unique, but they had lived on their streets basically their whole lives. Their dad is a street man, a man that that doesn't necessarily have a what we would call a home, but he survives on the street doing odd jobs. Um, he also sniffs glue um, and is very addicted to other drugs and other substances. And these two boys had been abandoned by their mom at six months old and left with a dad who was living on the streets. They'd never been to school and they were nine, they're nine years old. And they survived on their own, just finding things, stealing things when they needed to, um, taking food, uh, begging for money for food, finding any odd jobs. And so one day someone told them to come to Agape and get some help. Um, and they did. They showed up at our gate and asked for help and said, you know, they need, they need to come in because they had heard they were going to get help at Agape. And so through their time at Agape, it was really amazing um, to watch them change and to watch them have hope for the first time. We um, do a lot of programs with these children. They go to a lot of different classes and they would go to our school program on our campus and learn some basics in mathematics and reading and, and uh, writing and they were so excited. They just kept saying, I get to go to school and they're going to be nine years old in kindergarten and they couldn't be happier. So through the work with our social work team, um, we identified other family members that were home and that had a place for these two boys to go to and a place for them to go to school and so we were able to actually connect them with their grandmother who was ready and willing to take them in um, and uh, work with their dad to see that this was the best place for them and to see you know please don't disrupt these boys from where they are we're giving them a, a, a positive home and a positive chance to go to school and get an education and to work with these boys to see it's gonna be okay there's hope you know to introduce them to who Jesus is and the reality of the gospel message and they both you know asked Jesus into their heart and allowed God to really work and transform them and it's been amazing their lives have changed tremendously from when we first met them so yeah that's a, a great picture just one story and uh, that's the agape reintegration model that we are replicating in the town of Katali and those two narrators are going to be our partners on the ground in Katali working that model and so we're very very excited about what God has brought us to in that and and if you have not if you're kind of just joining us and you haven't been following with us these last couple of weeks as we've kind of rolled this thing out please stop by the exhibit in the hallway grab a brochure. This really is an exciting vision that God is calling us to as a church family. And it actually coincides with what it is that we're walking through in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We'll be in Nehemiah 4 today. Uh, the verses actually will be on your notes and on the screen behind me as well. 
And remember, we've talked about this idea of God birthing a vision in Nehemiah. And it started with an ache. Nehemiah had an ache that recognized, oh, there's something wrong that needs to be made right. And that's how every great vision starts. And so Nehemiah took that to the Lord. He began to pray. God began to birth a vision in Nehemiah's mind. And so he was able to go into Jerusalem. He was able to cast that vision in Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the gates and the walls and the temple and the homes and the livelihood and the future of all of God's people who, who lived in Jerusalem. And, and so that's kind of what's been going on so far. But today we're going to talk about the chief meanies. We're going to talk about the baddie, bad, bad guys of this Nehemiah story. And, um, and, and just kind of by way of uh, reminding you, because we've heard their names before in chapter two, and, and we'll hear their names again all the way throughout. But here's just quick by way of background. When Nehemiah cast the vision in Jerusalem, uh, it says in Nehemiah 2, 18, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Okay, and if you want to, you can circle the names Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. Th those names are going to come up again. They're in chapter 2. They're, we're going to talk about them in chapter 4. They show up again in chapter 6. But as we unpack this chapter, what I want you to do is I want to be able to read this in a much more personal kind of a way. Because anytime you recognize that, that we're going to go after a vision that God has given us, anytime that we're going to go after living the life that God invites us to live, we have to also recognize that there's an enemy, an enemy who comes against God, an enemy who comes against the things of God, the plans of God, the will of God, and the people of God. And so just like how Nehemiah does this, whenever the enemy comes against us, we have to remind him he has no claim on the good work that God's doing through our life. We have to remind him he has no share in the kingdom, the way that God wants to roll out his kingdom uh, in our lives and through our lives. But the enemy will continue to try to make your life hell. That's just his job description. So let's jump in. Now we're in chapter four. This is kind of where we're going to pick it up. And it says this. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. It's always good to ridicule someone when you're standing in front of an army, right? And he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Now, apparently, this is uproariously biting, right, this language that he's using. Uh, will they finish in a day? Ooh, that's a burn, right? Uh, it, it reminds me of like a sixth grade burn, like, oh, I know you are, but what am I, kind of a thing. And by the way, you know this, this is just how insults work. It's not necessarily the words you say, it's the tone you use. Isn't that right? If you're a parent of a teenager, can I get an amen right now? Yeah, exactly. We've got a 15-year-old attitude living in my home. 
And, uh, it, it, you know, we call him on it. Uh, Bud, you're being so rude. He's like, what? What? All I said was, I just wish I wasn't born into a family of idiots. Is that like, what? You know? Okay. Let's pick it up because Tobiah is hanging out right next to Sanballat. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. No, not the fox jab. Right? What's Tobiah saying? He's saying, I've seen stronger towers in a game of Jenga than what I'm looking at right now. And, and you know, it, it's just this like, you know, this ridicule, this jeering. And, and of course, it doesn't mean much to us reading it centuries, centuries later, but you need to recognize that these guys, they had the army of Samaria at their back. They were somewhat uh, powerful men who influenced opinion all over the region. They were profiting from the fact that Jerusalem was in ruins, and so they did not want it to be restored and rebuilt. So, so yeah, this, this actually mattered. This, this made waves among the people of Jerusalem who were trying to rebuild all of this. And, and so this is what Nehemiah does. He goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 4. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Friends, that's a pretty raw prayer, isn't it? It's kind of unfiltered, and you can see that there's emotion in it as he prays. And, and we might think, oh, that's not a very churchy-like prayer, and, it, and it's not. But I want you to see this, that God actually appreciates our real selves. God appreciates our, our raw emotions. And, and Nehemiah is obviously frustrated, and, and he's, he's upset that, that these enemies are coming against the builders of this vision, right? The, the, they're coming against the future and the hope of Jerusalem. And so, so he's angry about this. And I think that this is a shepherd's prayer. And I think as you read through the Psalms, you'll see that King David also prays prayers like this as, as he's praying for God to take care of the flock that, the, that God has given David in the people of Israel. And Overlake, I want you to know that you're being prayed for as well, that your elders, your pastors, that, that you're being prayed for as well, that God would shepherd and steward our church family and that there would be protection and peace as we go after the things that God calls us to do. So uh, let's keep going. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. We're going to go through verse 12 right here. It says, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city. So could you circle the word half? Half its height around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never, just underline that word, that's a dangerous word, we will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. 
The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So how far are they through this project? How, how, how far are they in this project? They're halfway. That's right. They're halfway through the project. The wall is about half the height that it needs to be. And now the enemy is bringing discouragement. And this is going to happen in your life and my life. This is just a reality of being human. Let's look at where the sources of discouragement are. Discouragement comes from, number one, loss of strength. Loss of strength. We see this in verse 10. The strength of the laborers is giving out. Now, please remember, they did not have cranes. They didn't have cement trucks. They didn't have earth movers. Not only that, they didn't have Starbucks. They didn't have Red Bull. They didn't have five-hour energy. Some of you are like, ooh, that is hard. That's really hard. And, and they've been at it. If, if you know, they're, they're halfway through the project, well, how long is that? It turns out that the whole project is 52 days. So if they're halfway through, they're somewhere around day 26. They've been going at it about a month straight, and the excitement has worn off. Notice that the passage says they began with great enthusiasm. So they started off every day, they go to work, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. And now day 26, they're like mumbling a Nirvana song, right? The energy has depleted. And I just, by show of hands, how many of you, have you been, you're in a work project, you do some kind of home improvement project, and about halfway through it, all of your energy is just is suddenly gone. Does anyone know what that feels like? Yeah, bless you, I see those hands. Yeah, exactly. So I live in Woodenville, and apparently this is a requirement to live in my town. You have to have a half-finished project in your front lawn. Uh, it's, it's part of the home association, you know, rules. Um, it, yeah, we, of course, this idea of just kind of running out of gas about halfway through something. In fact, for me, my wife, it's even quicker when it comes to like painting. We'll always have these grand visions of, oh yeah, let's just paint the downstairs. And then about 10 swaths, we're like, my arm is tired. Ah. And, and, and so you just have to recognize that this happens, this loss of strength. Winston Churchill says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And it's true, that loss of strength, that loss of energy, suddenly now our courage is gone. And so we have to go back to the source of our strength. Psalm 29, 11 says, the Lord gives his people strength. The joy of the Lord is the source of our strength, right? So we got to remember that when we experience this discouragement that comes from loss of strength. Number two, uh, the discouragement comes from a loss of vision. This is in verse 10 as well. And there is still so much rubble, they say. Notice where the focus is. The focus is on the rubble. The focus is on the refuse. The focus is on the ruin. And, by the way, if you remember, how long has that rubble been there? How long have the walls and everything been broken down? It's been 141 years. I don't know if you have ever had this in, in your life, if you've ever experienced this personally, but if you leave like a pile of, of stone or gravel or soil out, let's just say in your backyard, for six months or a year or two years, eventually what happens to that pile is maybe grass will grow over it or weeds up through it, ivy cover it. In other words, it's, after a certain amount of time, that's not just a pile, it's now a hill. 
It's a permanent part of the landscape. And that's what's happened in Jerusalem. The, the rubble has, it, it, you know, ivy and, and everything, it's, it's, it's made it semi-permanent. And, and that's what they see and that's where their focus is. It's not on what's been accomplished, it's, it's on what still hasn't been accomplished. And so then they say that word, the N-word, the never word. We will never, we will never, we can never, we're never going to. And friends, I just want to be really honest with you. The moment you say never, that's the moment you're right. The moment you believe you can't, that's the moment you won't. That God has given us this incredible power of will and of courage, but but the moment you lose heart, the moment you lose faith, the moment you decide we will never, that's the moment you're right. And that's what was going on in this context as well, that loss of vision. And this is true for all of us. In leadership circles, you might have heard this phrase before, vision leaks. So you recognize that maybe your, your vision is like a, you've got a bucket, and, and your vision needs to be filled up. So let's say for, for the spiritual life, for the things of God, you, we gather together on a Sunday, we get inspired, we're, ex, we're experiencing corporate worship, God meets us, and it's just beautiful, that vision bucket gets filled up. But then what happens on Monday? It leaks a little bit. And then on Tuesday, it leaks a little more. By Thursday, there's just a little bit left. And, and by the time, you know, the next weekend rolls around, we need that bucket refilled. And that's why it's so important for us to gather together. That's why it's so important for us to be in community with those like-minded uh, on the spiritual journey with us. Because vision leaks and loss of vision is a massive source of discouragement in our Lives And the third reason that we get discouraged is because we have a loss of confidence. A loss of confidence. And it's not all the enemies that are talking trash, and they are. They're basically saying, oh, we're going to swoop down. We're, we're going to come in. You don't know when to expect it, but when you least expect it, expect it. Like the enemies are, are good at talking trash. But look, even in verse 11 and 12, it's not just their enemies. It's the, the greater Jewish community who lives outside of the walls of Jerusalem near where the enemies live, and they're coming into the city, and they're saying, oh my goodness, you don't know, you know, the enemies are going to come, and there's no way to get around them, you can't avoid them, they're going to destroy you, it's going to be horrible, it's like there's nothing you can do, they're watching you all the time, every breath you take, every move you make, every cake you bake, every smile you fake, they're watching you, you know, with friends like that, who needs enemas? Right? Like, that, that's so discouraging. And when you get people around you who are speaking with those kind of voices in your life, it's important for you to shut off that flow into your life. The, the, those, they might be great hearts, but they're not being great friends in that moment. In other words, your over-anxiety about impending doom doesn't help me at all. But if you want to help me, grab a shovel and let's get to work. Right? There's a difference there. And I just want to be really, really clear. You don't need friends to speak fear and anxiety and worry over your life because you are probably doing a good enough job of that yourself. 
right? We, we've all kind of got that propensity to let that soundtrack play in our minds, the voices of an enemy who just comes insidiously whispering. And so we need to say, you know what? In the name of Jesus, shut up, right? That's not what I need to hear. What I need is I need the courage that comes from being in the Lord. I need the confidence that comes from knowing that I'm a child of God, that I'm going after the things of God, because it's when we're in the Lord that we experience his peace. That's what that verse says from Psalm 29, 11, and the Lord blesses his people with peace. And what I want to do is I want to tell you kind of the upside in all of this and the upside, and you're thinking, wait, where, where's the upside? The upside in my, uh, the reality, I have an enemy that comes against me. The upside that I'm going to lose my, my strength and my confidence and my vision and the discouragement is just inevitable. Like that, where's the upside in all this, pastor? Please tell me. Here's the truth. The truth is, if the enemy is coming against you, it means you're dangerous. I get it. I get it. We don't want to experience the anxiety that comes when the enemy sort of crashes in. But, but here's the deal. The reason why he's trying to pour anxiety on you is because you stress him out. Right? That, that's powerful. The, the idea that you are doing a good work, that God has done a good work, and now you are doing a good work for the Lord, and you're pursuing the plans of the Lord, the, the will of the Lord. You're trying to operate out of the vision of the Lord for your life as you build your family or you build your marriage, you build your spiritual friendships. You, you, know, you put your hand to the right plow, and you go after the things that God's calling you to do to reveal the kingdom in this life, and the enemy does not want that. And so because you're a threat to what he's trying to accomplish, he is going to come against you. Friends, that, that is actually incredible encouragement. Are you with me this morning? Like, do you understand this, that you are powerful in the Lord? If you're tired and if you're beat down and if you're weary, it means that you are doing great things for God's kingdom. Friends, I believe with all my heart that Overlake is right in the center of this, that we are doing great things for the kingdom of God, but there always is a cost. I found a quote from Francis Schaeffer this week that talked about the cost. It says this, the more the Holy Spirit works, the more Christians will be used in battle, and the more they are used, the more there will be personal cost and tiredness. And the reason is because the enemy thinks you're dangerous. The enemy thinks you're worth fighting. And Nehemiah recognizes this. He recognizes the enemy coming against this work. He recognizes the enemy insulting the builders and coming against what it is that God's calling him to do. So look how he responds. He says, therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Friends, do you know what this is? Nehemiah was giving a halftime speech. This was a powerful pep talk in which Nehemiah was able to rally the people together. And he'd give them that clarion call, this is why we fight, this is what we're going after. 
Friends, we're about halfway through this message. I want to give you just a little bit of a pep talk right now. We will fight. No. We will run. And we will live. Shame on you. This could be the greatest night of our lives. But you're going to let it be the worst. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life. You won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. Well, I'm not going home. We've got too far! And I'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause. A day may come when the courage of men fails. But it is not this day. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. You're gonna work harder than you ever worked before. But that's fine, we'll just get tougher with it. If a person grits his teeth and shows real determination. Failure is not an option. That's how winning is done. Believe me when I say we can break this army here. And win just one for the Gipper. But I say to you, what every warrior has known since the beginning of time, you've got to get mad. I mean plumb mad dog mean. If you would be free men, then you must fight to fulfill that promise. They just cut out their living guts one inch at a time. And they will know what we can do. Let no man forget how menacing we are. We are lions. You're like a big bear, man. This is your time. Seize the day. Never surrender. Victory or death. Punch the Chicago. Who's with me? Clap. Clap. Don't let him die. Clap. All right, let's fly. I'm gentlemen in England. Now I bet. Shall know my name is the Lord. When I tell our enemies that they may take our lives. But they'll never take our Independence Day. <laughs> My favorite was the tear. Kirk Douglas. All right, friends, that's it. That's the pep talk right there. We're about halfway through. You know, this is the challenge. Nehemiah said, let's give 110%. By the way, we found this quote. Uh, Giving 110% takes hard work, dedication, and a complete disregard for how math works. So let's do this. Okay, let's do it. If you're filling in the blanks, the first challenge that Nehemiah brings is remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. You are not alone in this. You are never alone in this. You are never alone. There's not a battle you will face. There's not a trial you will face. There's not a temptation you will face. There's not an instant you will ever face where you are alone. The Lord will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Remember the Lord. It is not you versus the enemy. It's you and the Lord versus the enemy. The equation changes instantly when you remember the Lord. And if we focus on the rubble, if we focus on the reasons for our discouragement, we'll think we can never beat it. We'll think we can never experience his victory. But if we focus on God, And if we remember him, then we are miles ahead. The entire equation has changed. And by the way, we need to remember that even though there is this battle that we find ourselves in, that that the Lord is our shepherd, and with him we shall not want. 
And he's the one who leads us into green pastures and besides still waters. He calms our soul, right? That's why we can remember the Lord. And whatever's going on, the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he says this in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. No matter what's going on, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about, can you say this word with me? Everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Remember the Lord. The Lord, I, I wrote this in my notes in the margin of my Bible next to this Philippians verse. He is the X in every algebra equation of life. He is always present. And his presence is what brings us peace. We remember the Lord. Now, let's pick it up in verse 15, chapter 4. We'll read to the end here. It says, uh, Nehemiah says, When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and officials and to all the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding. Then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. In other words, we were always ready. We were never able to be taken off guard. And that actually brings us to this next truth. If you're filling in the blanks, it's this. We work differently under attack. When the battle is coming, we work differently under attack. And what Nehemiah did is instantly he split his crews right into two that while one group worked, the other half stood guard. And then not only that, but everyone worked. They had one hand on their load and one hand with a weapon. That, that they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And every single person had a sword strapped at their side. We work differently under attack. Instantly, this whole work scenario looked totally different. And there are just some things that you do differently when you realize you're living in a battle zone. It doesn't mean that the work stops. It did not stop. It just means that it's done differently. And of course, you could say, well, that's not very efficient. It's not very efficient to try to work with one hand having a weapon and the other hand holding a trowel. And I would agree, it's not as efficient as having both your hands free. However, it's infinitely more efficient than having the enemy swoop in and undo all of the work that's been done so far. Because that's what had been done for 141 years. And so you recognize that maybe in your life there are these places where you're vulnerable 
to temptation or discouragement or despair. Places where you know the enemy has access to attack you. The challenge is, what do you need to do differently? Because you need to, to recognize this truth and work differently under attack. You don't want to just, you know, let the enemy come and just keep knocking you down, right? There's, there's a challenge here. So what is it that we do? And you might want to write these down. From Nehemiah's example, the first thing I would encourage is that you pray like crazy. You pray like crazy that you're always going, like Nehemiah went, you're always going to the Lord in prayer. When you know the, bat the battle can come, when you know the enemy is after you, that you just begin to pray. And the second thing is you choose not to live isolated, that you don't live isolated. This is just such a weird thing that happens that, that our temptation is to live isolated before the temptation of the enemy comes. And the enemy is the one doing that because he wants to pick us off. It's so much easier for him to do it if we are isolated. And so this is where you really do make a commitment. You begin to share Bible verses with friends that, that you live with a commitment to your group, a commitment to gathering together in this corporate worship context that, that you maybe clear your schedule or do things differently so you can meet in, in the morning before work with a brother or sister who's on the same journey as you or, or you carve out time for coffee or, or you recognize that you're, you know, two, three times a week you're connecting, having an honest and, and open conversation with, with like-minded folks who are on this spiritual journey just like you are. Why? Because we don't want to live isolated. One of the most powerful ministries we have at Overlake is a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. It meets on Tuesday nights in the chapel by the front uh, of, of the building here. And, and I just, I want you to understand why it's so powerful. It's so powerful because of the commitment not to live isolated. There's an incredible amount of mutual support and encouragement that comes. When we just gather together and we say, hey, I need some help here. This is where the battle comes. And, and, and there's an openness and a transparency to talk about those things and encourage one another in the midst of them. So I'd encourage you, pray like crazy. Don't live isolated because we do life differently knowing that there's an attack and it brings us to number three that we see in this passage, the challenge to run toward the sound of the trumpet. In other words, where Nehemiah says, hey, the battle is here, the fighting is here, the trumpeter blows his, his trumpet, and, and the encouragement is for the entire city then to come together where the battle is the fiercest. And I would just suggest to you, this is highly counterintuitive to what our natural tendencies are. Our natural tendencies are to run from the place of the battle. Our natural tendencies are, oh, if we know that's a weakness, that's a brokenness, let me just turn and run away. And, you know, the term that is used so often is the term escapism. Uh, we escape or we medicate, right? Uh, we just um, distract ourselves. There's just so many uh, avenues that, that we use to, to run away from the sound of the trumpet in the battle as opposed to turning and going toward I heard this analogy, and it was just so visual in my mind. I wanted to share it with you. It's kind of from uh, African tribal lore, and it's this. It's when an intergenerational pride of lions would hunt, they would often use the same tactic. And what they would use is, is they would send the, the old, worn-out, toothless lions to one side of the savanna 
Right? They, they would all kind of congregate around one side of the savanna. Meanwhile, on the other side of the plain, the African plain, all of the healthy, you know, the, the powerful hunting lions would be on this side. And then at some point, all of these old toothless lions would begin to roar in a terrifying fashion. And the enemies, or excuse me, the animals on the plane would run away from the roaring lions straight into the teeth of the hunting lions. And so the African elders would teach their young children, if you're in the savanna and you hear the roar, run toward it. Though your knees will be knocking, run toward the sound of the roar because that is safety. Even though you're going to be tempted to run away from the roar, that is destruction. It's totally counterintuitive. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is. is, This is a great leadership principle, right? Embrace this counterintuitive reality that, yes, we recognize that we're going to want to run away. We're going to want to escape. We're going to want to distract. We're going to want to medicate. And here's the spiritual principle. No, run toward it. And, And run toward it with your brothers and sisters. And be open about, hey, this is where the attack comes. Because when we're open about it, when we're all running to the same place... That's where the Lord fights the battle for us. That's where the victory happens. Now, Overlake, I want to talk corporately for a moment about this church family as a whole. I am so proud that this is a church family that has a DNA that we consistently run toward the sound of the trumpet. I am so thankful that we consistently find, oh, here's where the battle is, and then as a church family, we run there, and we begin to engage in ministry there so that we can make a kingdom difference there. And friends, that's exactly what the Katali Project is an example of, is that we recognize, hey, this is unacceptable for these young kids to be living on the streets, to have no homes, to have no hope, no schooling, no future. How can we get them back into homes? And so we as a church run there and say, hey, we can figure this out. We can make a difference. Let's see the kingdom of God revealed here. Now, as I I, I wrap up our time together, I just want to ask you sort of the big 30,000-foot question, why? Why? Why why do we want to do these things? Why do we want to run toward the sound of the trumpet why, why do we want to remember the Lord? Why do we want to work differently under attack? Why, why do we prize these things at all? Yeah, it's in this chapter in Nehemiah, but why do we care about it today? Here's the answer. Because this is what Jesus did for us. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has seen us in our need. Jesus has seen us unable to do for ourselves what only he can do for us. And so Jesus, he left the Father's side. He came to this earth. He lived a life in poverty. He he taught and he modeled the Father's will for us. And by the way, Jesus worked differently under attack. Was Jesus attacked by the enemy? Absolutely. Did Jesus know temptation? Yeah, he knew every temptation. And so he knew what it was like to remember the Lord and work differently under an attack. And he ran towards the sound of the trumpet where the battle was. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. And so, friends, this is why we go after these things. This is why we we stack hands and we say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to pray like crazy and we're not going to live isolated. 
right? We want to remember the Lord. We want to work differently. We want to go to the sound of the battle. Why? It's all because of Jesus. All right, so why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's ask him for his help. Jesus, I'm certain that as we talk about some of these things, that there are places in all of our hearts where we recognize that we're vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And so I would just ask right now that by the power of your spirit, that you would whisper your love over us, that this is not a moment to embrace shame or to listen to the voices of shame. It's not a time to listen to the voices of anxiety or worry. It's not a time to listen to the voices that would run us down or insult the workers for the Lord. But instead, Lord Jesus, we want to hear from you. And so we ask that you would allow us to hear your whisper of love. Allow us, by your, your spirit present with us right now, help us to remember the Lord, that, that there is nothing we face that we face alone. Help us to figure out what it looks like for us to work differently under attack. What do we need to change? What about this next week do I need to change because I want to work differently knowing that the enemy will attack? And lastly, Lord Jesus, show us what it looks like to run toward the sound of the trumpet where we can be for our brothers and sisters and for our husbands and wives, where we can be for our groups and, and for our church family and for our community and for these street kids. We, we want to run to where the battle is because that's where you fight for us and that's where we see your victory. So we pray all these things, Lord Jesus, in your precious and holy name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.